What Brings You In Today is produced by medical students at the University of Wisconsin. As medical students, we are not fully trained physicians or licensed to practice medicine. The information presented here is for entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or education. To preserve privacy and maintain patient confidentiality, identifying details about patients were changed for this podcast. All opinions expressed belong to the speaker, not their institution or employer. Hello, Bethy. Hi, Kaya. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm all right. Better than better than last time. I listened to that. That's true. I I sounded rough. I don't know what yeah, I was going you, through. I you know what? I think it I think it turned out good, and I think we're on the up and up. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think we're doing good. Yeah. Well. Welcome back, everyone, listeners of What Brings You In Today, this lovely podcast of medical humanities and narrative medicine. That was great. Oh, I thank you. My so, name is... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. It, you know, we jinxed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Beth Merkel. And I'm Kaya Vaughn. And we are medical students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Awesome. So, Ms. Beth, tell us what brings us in today. What are we talking about today? So we are continuing our theme on um, mental health during the holidays, and we are going to be talking about eating disorders. And we have a absolutely lovely guest. Um, Her name is Dr. Mara Esber, and she'll be talking to us about eating disorders and how they present and different types of treatments and also how we can support individuals or be supported if we are individuals with um, eating disorders during the holidays. Lovely. Couldn't have said it better myself. All right. Let's get into it. Okay. All righty. So let's start with having our guest introduce herself. Um, Well, thank you so much for having me, Kaya and Beth. Um, My name is Mara Esper, and I am a clinical psychologist at UW Health. Um, This is my first year in that position, and prior to that, I was at UW SMPH for my pre-doctoral internship and postdoctoral fellowship. Wonderful. And just a fun question that I've decided we're going to start asking Kaya is um, <laughs> what is a, what's a valuable piece of advice or a, a really salient lesson or story from your training that has stuck with you through the years? Uh, I love this question because even though I'm a professional, I feel so still connected to training and I fully believe that we're, we're always training. So it's kind of a, an interesting transition to being um an actual staff provider now. Um, But I think something that I carry with me, um, once a mentor told me, when in doubt, do the human thing. And what I love about that is at the end of the day, when we're in a room with a patient, we're really just a fellow human being with them. And I think when we can tap into that shared humanity and really embrace our unique qualities as a human being, I think we could really best serve our patients. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I, I'm in this class right now, what is in it called the healer's art. And oh. that was like the whole principle of our last session yesterday. So this feels like a 
almost like a sign to bring that concept back. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think, yeah, I think for me too, it also feels um, forgiving. I think as providers, um, we make mistakes. We don't always get it right. And I think forgiving ourselves and recognizing um, we're learning and growing feels like a powerful thing. Yeah. And then because we are on an episode about disordered eating, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about your experience working with it. Um, yeah. Tell us a of little course. bit. Of course. I went into grad school being interested in working with patients with eating disorders. And I had my first experience with this population early into my training. I was at a partial hospitalization program for individuals with OCD, anxiety disorders, and eating disorders. And a partial hospitalization program is a higher level of care than outpatient. Um, It's a day treatment program. So they go for the day, come home, and um, stay at their own home at night. Um, Much more intensive than an hour of weekly therapy. Um, And this was really my first experience of working on an interdisciplinary team and utilizing evidence-based practices for eating disorders. So that really further fueled my interest in eating disorders. Um, And then on my internship at UW, I did a rotation my first semester in eating disorders, and I haven't left the clinic. Um, uh, Yeah, I've been there ever since. And now I do supervision and continue to see patients within that clinic. What does it mean when you say you do supervision? Oh, yeah. So we offer this rotation to, when I say um, internship, so for doctoral programs in psychology, our last year is a match program. Um, And that's kind of equivalent to our residency. So we have uh, interns and postdoctoral fellowships who do this as an elective. Um, So supervision, I supervise an intern. Um, We also do group supervision. So really just doing case consultation and talking about different interventions to use with patients. Awesome. To kind of get to like the foundational basics here, um, how would you define an eating disorder, maybe clinically and non-clinically? What is your definition of that? Yeah. I love this idea that there's a distinction um, in how we, I think how we define it clinically and then what it looks like in actuality and also how we explain it. Um, An eating disorder, if we go the DSM clinical route, um, we categorize that in the eating and feeding disorder section. Um, And that includes eating disorders that we see typically early in development, such as pica and rumination disorder. And we also have the disorders that culturally we're more familiar with. So anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, And I think so important, the most common eating disorder category, which is other specified feeding and eating disorders, also referred to as OSFED. And I think that's so important because the DSM, as we know, doesn't capture um, humans adequately with the classification system. So a lot of people end up falling in that category of there is clinically significant symptoms, um, functioning is impaired, and it doesn't meet neatly into one of those categories. Um, What all that has in common is eating and impairment in functioning. Um, But of course, they differ from disorder to to disorder. 
Um, for example, some have the criteria of overvaluation of shape and weight, where others don't. Um, and so that's, I think, the clinical perspective. Um, with patients, I really, there are a few things I really want to emphasize when I'm giving psychoeducation. Um, and I typically explain my conceptualization through the biopsychosocial model. Um, so I really want them to understand that there's this interaction between genetics, their individual traits, and uh, factors in the environment. Um, for example, the impact of stressors and also the cultural messages around food, weight and shape and, and bodies. All of that can lead to an eating disorder. So I really want to drive home the connection between biology and the environment. And a key purpose there is to reduce shame and blame. Um, sometimes individuals with eating disorder um, say, like, I'm choosing to do this. I'm the one who um, is doing these behaviors that is really upsetting to my family and it's really impacting everything. I'm choosing this. And it's so important to say, no, you're not. These symptoms are really in the context of a medical illness. I think that's also helpful for parents um, to know that they did not cause this. Our field has such a history of blaming parents, especially mothers, for um, child psychopathology. So I really want parents to know that they didn't cause this, but rather they could be such an instrument in helping their child recover. Um, I think also along with the definition of an eating disorder, we really want to parse it out from the person, um, seeing the eating disorder as separate from them. And the term we use to describe that is externalization of the eating disorder. So we often talk about the eating disorder as a separate entity. And again, that's like we're reducing shame and blame. The person isn't choosing this. It's the eating disorder. And as a team, we're all working against that eating disorder, not the person. Well, just to kind of follow up to what you were saying, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this environmental component of eating disorders. What does that typically look like? Oh, that's such a good question. I think it's so multifaceted. Um, and I think I'm really seeing this from the perspective of like the thin white ideal that our society really values. We see um, there's so much emphasis on individual health, saying like the message being to be happy, healthy, and accepted, you have to look a certain way. And it's a moral failing if you're not, quote, healthy. Um, so that's the messages around health. There's also so many messages about um, how our bodies should look. And that's so pervasive from media and uh, messages from loved ones and the culture in healthcare. So really, those messages are all over. And of course, that could have an impact on, on anyone um, in our society and culture. Yeah. How do eating disorders often present? That's a great question. Um, it depends. And I think something that's so important, and I think it kind of goes into the weight stigma of our society, but... Um, eating disorders do not discriminate. Um, they impact people of all ages, body shapes and weights, races and ethnicities. Um, and so I think with that, we should be 
assessing everybody for an eating disorder because sometimes we, I think most of the time, we, we don't necessarily see it. Um, but what we do see are behaviors. And again, that's going to depend on the eating disorder. Um, so for individuals with anorexia or restrictive eating, we're going to see a lot of changes to eating. Um, usually it starts with dieting. That's a big risk factor for individuals who have a predisposition for eating disorders. Um, and from there, their diet becomes more and more restrictive. So cutting out food groups, um, sometimes um, randomly choosing to be a vegetarian or a vegan to kind of mask the restriction, um, skipping meals, cutting calories. Um, we see this um, obsession with food, even though they're not necessarily eating. Um, for individuals with bulimia, um, we often see restriction as well, um, as well as compensatory behaviors. So that may be over-exercising or purging. If an individual is going to the bathroom right after meals um, and staying in there for a prolonged period, that could be um, a sign that they are engaging in purging behavior. Um, for those who are binging, um, there can be a lot of shame around this behavior and individuals often binge in secret. Um, so that could be going, um, going out and getting food and engaging in that behavior in their car, waiting till family members go to sleep. Um, so there's different behaviors within each category. And again, we don't necessarily see that, um, visibly. Yeah. What are some of the long-term effects that can arise if you have an untreated eating disorder? Yeah. So eating disorders are so medically complex. Um, we know that for malnutrition and starvation, it impacts all, all organ systems. We're especially concerned for bradycardia, um, hypothermia, um, a lot of acute concerns, um, as well as long-term effects medically. For those with bulimia, we're concerned for um, with purging. That could lead to abnormal potassium levels, which can lead to arrhythmias. Over time, we see um, erosion of the esophagus and stomach lining. So they're both acute medical concerns that could happen at any time in the disorder, but of course those become exacerbated over time. Um, eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate, second only to opioid use. And wow. that's related to the medical complications, but also death by suicide. So we're really concerned for both the physical and psychiatric symptoms. Yeah. Um, but can I ask you guys a question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering what's the training that you get from a medical perspective in eating disorders, both um, medically and psychologically? I'll let Kaya go first. Oh, no. I want you to go first. <laughs> I, I can go first if you want. I feel like, well, I'll, I feel like so far, at least for us, we, we're second years. Um, so we're got, this is our last semester, and then next year we Amazing. go on our way to rotations. Thank you. Um, but that being said, so I feel like we haven't had a whole lot of work with eating yeah. disorders yet. I feel like we had a sh like a we had a, a like a CBL over it, which is a, like a basically class where we sit and talk about questions. And we had like an ELO. We had like a video. Um, yeah, and that's been about it so far. 
Um, so I'm assuming that will be built upon, you know, further within our medical training. Um, but so far, not a whole lot. Yeah, I would agree with that. We, we've received like, kind of just like, this is the, the DSM criteria. Yeah. And these are the, the long-term sequelae of the disease. Um, but not, not much else. I think like, I guess I can, I can share this too. Like I was diagnosed with like just like an eating disorder in college. So my perspective of that is very um, like, I I just have a lot of like other perspective or outside perspective that is fed into this like understanding of an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's kind of, I feel like what we've received in class is like a a drop in the bucket compared to like the, the experiences that I've had. And I'm sure others in our class have also also had. Yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Beth. Yeah. Um, and I think that's so valuable to like pull in that empathy from your individual experience and understanding it. And that's totally been my experience too, that we had, um, we covered it briefly in psychopathology and that seemed to be the end of that. Yeah. I think it really is a training gap. Yeah. I think yeah. so too. When does a be, when does like, um, a certain eating behavior, like dieting, become an eating disorder? Like, what's the distinction Ooh. between those two? That's a good question. Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, I think that we typically look for patterns. Um, so, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for teenagers to try dieting. Um, but typically, this is short-lasting. Um, hopefully, this is short-lasting. But again, for those who have that genetic predisposition, it can um, really be a risk factor. Um, it becomes a disorder when it becomes a pattern. Um, when we're noticing, um, again, those risk be- behaviors of skipping meals, um, increased restriction, concerns for purging, and while the DSM has a time period, a certain number of you know times of purging that they want to see before they diagnose it, my perspective is when we see those warning signs, when we see these behaviors, um, if we can address it then and there, the better prognosis over time. Do people think with like when people who have eating disorders engage in those like um like fixating on on, cer- on certain foods or like certain compensatory mechanisms do they have an understanding that it's abnormal or do they feel like this is just what they what they need to do or yeah i'm i'm curious what your perspective on that is so i'm going to talk about anorexia and then um bulimia and binge eating um there's so many paradoxes in restrictive eating that happens psychologically and physically. So when an individual restricts, um, it's positively reinforcing for individuals with eating disorders. Um, there can be a sense of, of pride that comes with that and so just positive feelings. It could also take away, it's also negatively reinforcing. It can take away aversive feelings. Um, and so as an individual keeps restricting, um, Actually, hunger cues go away um, and actually eating becomes more difficult because their stomach begins to shrink. So there are a lot of things that make eating difficult. Um, Also, their brain um, tells them don't eat, don't eat, um, keep engaging in these behaviors. 
And at the same time, they become really preoccupied with food. So there's a lot of things that are going on um, that makes their relationship with food and decision-making around food and the behaviors they're engaging in really, really difficult. Um, when I talk about eating disorders with people, I, I often draw this Venn diagram and I say like, okay, here's you. And individuals who develop anorexia often have traits such as perfectionism, ambition, determination, amazing qualities that bode so well in other aspects of their life to a degree, everything, you know, in balance, um, which often with perfectionistic people, um, perfectionism can take over in unhealthy ways. Um, but the eating disorder takes those strengths and uses it against them. So then we have the eating disorder. And when I do this Venn diagram, I like show the overlap. Like this is you, here's the eating disorder. You're still here, but the eating disorder is really taking over right now and using your strengths against you. And so when an individual is in the throes of the eating disorder, they're really fighting against themselves to make these decisions around eating. And most of the time, the eating disorder is going to win. Um, it is really difficult for them to fight against those behaviors. Another core symptom of anorexia is um, lack of seriousness of the illness. Um, so oftentimes, they can be in denial that these behaviors are significantly impacting their health. Um, with anorexia, we call that egocentric. Have either of you heard that term before? I have not. I have. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> that you take it away. Well, ego syntonic is like I'm not going to be able to describe this well, but I, I was talking about this the other day with like the difference between obsessive compulsive personality disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh, that's such a good example. So, like, if you have obsessive compulsive personality disorder you kind of don't necessarily perceive that your obsessions and or compulsions are, are abnormal, essentially. Um, but if you have OCD, um, you have an understanding that what you're doing isn't necessarily like rational. This is a very simplified. Yes, no, that's yeah. a perfect explanation. Um, so eating disorders or anorexia is egocentric. So the behaviors that they're doing feels good and true to them and like what they want to do, which makes treating it so difficult. Um, bulimia and binge eating disorder are often egodystonic, meaning that the behaviors that they're doing, they feel a lack of control when they, for individuals with bulimia, when they um, binge and purge for individuals with binge eating disorder for when they binge. There's a sense of lack of control and a lot of shame that comes with those behaviors. And for them, they often see, this is not what I want to do. Um, I want some help in addressing that. Um, so that's, I think, a difference in individuals' understanding of the concerns that are are happening. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the the next kind of section is talking about different kind of cultural conceptions or understandings of what an eating dis eating disorder might look like. Um, and I guess we wanted to talk about whether you feel like some of these depictions are accurate or inaccurate. Um, and if they are, how are they accurate or inaccurate? You know, when we think of eating disorders, um, as I kind of mentioned before, I think we often think of thin, white, young females. 
And of course, eating disorders impact that population. I think, unfortunately, research has focused primarily with this population. Um, Therefore, I think there's a lot of unknown about the assessment and treatment for other populations. Um, But of course, eating disorders impact everybody. And um, sorry if I'm repeating this, but I think that this is something that I feel really impassioned about right now. I think weight stigma um, really impacts detection of eating disorders. Um, For example, there's, I mentioned um, other specified feeding and eating disorders that kind of catch all diagnosis. Within that, there's a disorder called atypical anorexia. And so that's for individuals who meet essentially all criteria for anorexia, except that they're not at a significantly low body weight. And that term atypical, I think, is so stigmatizing um, for many reasons. Um, When individuals um, have atypical anorexia and they're told that, they could feel a lot of stigma of, well, I don't look like I have anorexia. And that could impact their ability to recognize the seriousness of the illness. And I think especially concerning, um, it can impact providers' ability to detect anorexia in people who may be in larger bodies. Um, so I think um, I'm forgetting the question. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, you're um, good. The question. Oh, cultural presentations. Um, yeah. So I think um, I think that's really important for us as providers to be aware of. Um, And of course, eating disorders impact other cultural groups. And sometimes um, the the behaviors and the sometimes desired body is different than in other populations. Um, We also know that there are some... Oh, in terms of other cultural presentations, we know that individuals in the LGBTQIA community are at greater risk, especially bisexual men and trans individuals. Um, And often that's related to, uh, for trans individuals, to gender dysphoria. Um, And we know that gender-affirming care can have such a positive impact in uh, not only supporting the gender dysphoria, but also um, disordered eating too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask if, um, I apologize, what did you say the other category was eating disorders, like not speci- other specified? Or- oh, yeah, other um, other specified feeding and eating disorders. Yeah. I was going to ask if you, if your experience with people who have that diagnosis, they often feel like it's their eating disorder isn't like valid or isn't serious enough or if they experience a lot of like, yeah, just feeling like, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, just not thinking yeah. seriously. I think they definitely can. In the DSM-4, they called that category not not otherwise specified eating and feeding disorders, which I yeah. think even more so, like you're telling me I'm not specified in the DSM category. So I think that that catch-all, I think, yeah, can be very excluding. And I think that on this cultural level, I think I think that there's so much work that needs to be done to reduce stigma around eating disorders and really how they can present. And I, it's my opinion that when we have subclinical symptoms, that's the best time to treat it. Yeah. Um, but of course, for those individuals, um, and denial is such a big part of some eating disorders. So mm-hmm. there definitely can be a lot of feelings that come up when they do have that diagnosis. 
Yeah, absolutely. I I want to hit on this other part of this cultural conception question here um, about discipline. I think this is a really interesting question. Um, so the way that the lovely Beth has kind of phrased this out to be, um, you know, sometimes it's viewed as people with anorexia are just super disciplined, whereas people with bulimia um, aren't. They're undisciplined. Yeah. What are kind of your thoughts on that kind of depiction? I think for me, what comes up when I hear that is lack of understanding of eating disorders. Um, and again, like some individuals try dieting and it doesn't lead to an eating disorder. But for those who have the predisposition, once that risk factor of dieting is in place or an, another stressor and they're engaging in those behaviors, it's really out of their control. Um, and again, like when we say it's because of discipline, I think that's implying that there's a choice. And I'm of the I I firmly and confidently believe that eating disorders are not a choice. Um, so I think that's my response to that idea of discipline. And again, I think for this idea that individuals who binge don't have discipline, I think that goes back to stigma around health and this idea that you should be in control. Um, you're responsible for your health. You do have a choice. And I think that can be so detrimental and perpetuates that shame surrounding this behavior. Mm -hmm. um, you've mentioned a few times that dieting may or may not lead to an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So that being said, knowing that it can be a risk factor for eating disorders, what are your thoughts on diet culture in general? Like, how do you feel about dieting? Oh, yeah. It's like, I'm like feeling that, like I'm feeling myself like rev up to answer ready to go. question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so complicated. I think right now in the clinic, we're really working to address this. We did, um, my supervisor, Dr. Catherine Schomburg, she created this program called the Body Acceptance Movement. And what that's really targeting is fat phobia and anti-fat bias, um, both of which are pervasive in our culture. Um, fat right. phobia is fear of fatness. Anti-fat bias is really what, the way we make comments about other people's bodies. Um, I think at a macro level, um, ways in which our society isn't built for people in, in larger bodies. Um, and so we're really working to really work against that. And I think it's so hard treating eating disorders against the wave of diet culture, weight stigma, anti-fat bias, um, because our society teaches us that if you are thin, you will be, you will be accepted. You will feel better. And that's yep. so stigmatizing um, for people of all bodies. Um, I'm a firm believer of health at every size um, that's a movement that really indicates that your weight does not indicate health. Yeah. And so diet culture is telling people that you should be in a body that maybe your body doesn't want to be in, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, and this is messaging that young kids are getting, um, of course, people through all ages, um, and it just seems to keep going, I think, with the introduction of Ozempic for, yeah. for this purpose and just so many, so many factors in our culture 
I think that I, my hope is that we could have change at a systemic level that could just support people with their bodies and changing our relationship with food. Um, I think, yeah, I think I'm just so stuck on how we do this and working with patients on the individual level when there's so many of these surrounding factors. Um, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you describe, I think we all kind of know what this means because we've been saying it, but when we say like a relationship with food, I've used that term as someone who has gone through like this process with um, like recovery from an eating disorder. And I think we all kind of know what it means, but I've also had people be like, what do you mean? A relationship yeah, that's a, that's, I never really thought about that. I use the term all the time. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, when I think of a relationship with food, um, I think this is probably like my cognitive behavioral therapist brain, but I think of a person's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors related to food, eating, and their bodies. Um, I think that's how I would define it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think like the understanding that, especially for someone with any type of disordered eating behavior is that sometimes eating food is just, it's so much more than eating food. You know, there's yeah. so much baggage and, and meaning and implication that can come with it. Um, totally. And again, I think that's where genetic and environmental factors come into play too. Um, we know that for individuals with anorexia, some of them experience an aversion to eating sometimes. We know for individuals who binge, um, the reward system there, there may be a trade that impacts that. And then of course we have the messaging around food too. There's so many things that impact our relationship with food. Yeah. Um, so I, f I feel like in our training, we are just always taught that eating disorders belong to people who are just aggressively trying to be thin and it's about weight. Um, is there more depth to that? Like, does it eventually become more than just trying to lose weight or trying to be thin? Does that, it's kind of a meandering question. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think that, yeah, we get taught like it's the pursuit for thinness, but you know, and sometimes that, that could be the case that an individual feels like things in their life would be better or different if they were thin. For some individuals with anorexia, um, a risk factor can be bullying about their weight. Um, so sometimes it is a desire for thinness, um, but but that's not it. A lot of individuals we know are impacted by stress. And sometimes when individuals restrict, there's a felt sense of control. Um, of course, we know that individuals with eating disorder, um, that's not a means for control, but that's really the desire there. Um, it can also be a way to manage really difficult feelings. Um, often individuals with eating disorders struggle with emotion dysregulation. So engaging behaviors such as restriction, binging, purging can provide some temporary relief there. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I think something I haven't mentioned is ARFID. Um, that's a new one in the DSM-5, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And that's when an individual um, 
has a loss of interest in food, aversion to food, or has experienced some trauma related to food, such as choking or vomiting. And the restriction there is for those purposes as opposed for thinness or desire to lose weight. Um, but I think it's also really important to note that um, individuals, of course, don't cleanly stay in one category. Um, anorexia often leads to bulimia. ARFID can lead to anorexia. Um, and that could shift over time. Interesting. I feel like I have so many more questions I want to ask, but my brain is stalling. <laughs> <laughs> we want to jump into treatments and recovery, Kyle? That's the thing. I feel like I wanted to ask more questions about eating well, disorders we in general, but we're not, we can't we're go not, back. Yeah. That's true. Yes. We're not we're not bound to this. So yeah. okay. <laughs> so we'll just jump into treatments and recovery then. Um, cool. So then to start us off, then do um, do individuals with eating disorders typically have a full recovery? Yes, Real, full recovery is possible. So we know that individuals with eating disorders can have a full recovery and early detection and treatment can have a positive prognosis. And then have you found that people are easy? We kind of discussed this, but do people easily accept that they have an eating disorder or what can that process look like if they are not fully able to accept that yet? Yeah. So, you know, when people come to me in specialty care, they've often heard that they've had a, they have a diagnosis of eating disorders. Oftentimes that's coming from their primary care doctor who lets them know that they're making the referral. Other times people come with me having had treatment for eating disorders. Um, so for there, I think that can, um, that can maybe lessen denial when they've already had that foundation of treatment or working through understanding of the diagnosis. And again, denial is a key part of anorexia. And I think that when we talk about treatment, I'll talk more about the family approach, but when a teen is in denial, but we have parents on board, um, we, we find a way to move forward with treatment. Um, I think that's a hard role as the therapist because we're taught to be compassionate and collaborative and follow the lead of the patient. But when teenagers are engaging in disordered eating behaviors and they don't have access to the part of their brain, um, they have a malnourished brain and they're fighting against the eating disorder. Cognitions um, and understanding are just more difficult um, during this time. So for that, we're able to move forward and work through it together. I think that's more difficult with, with adults. Um, when there, you know, isn't a caregiver necessarily involved, um, I think that becomes more dependent on them to make a choice. But our treatment kind of works through how to approach that and work through patients to, to help them get there if they're feeling, if they're willing and feeling ready and able to do that work. Yeah. Go ahead, Kyle. <laughs> so I have more questions now going back to, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I told you all this would happen and it's happening now. Um, <laughs> But so can you just, again, kind of describe what your role is with people with eating disorders? Um, and then I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah. Um, so my role is individual therapy, but I think individual therapy and eating disorder treatment is different than treating other presentations and that you're on a team. We need that collaboration from the individual's primary care physician, um, if they're seeing a dietitian, and any supporters um, in the person's life that's part of the team. 
Um, and so the role is a little bit different for treating children compared to treating adults. Um, for the treatment for, is it okay to go into treatment? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, cool. So the treatment, the key first-line evidence-based treatments for children and adolescents are a little bit, excuse me, for adolescents and adults are a little bit different. So for adults, we use, it's called CBTE, um, and that's Enhanced Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. That's a transdiagnostic treatment for eating disorders. So again, given the overlap of eating disorder treatments, or excuse me, um, given the overlap of disordered eating behaviors, this is really getting at a core conceptualization that addresses all disordered eating behaviors and, of course, is tailored to the individual's presentation. Um, and that looks like typical individual therapy where um, initially you're working on it's psychoeducation. The focus for all eating disorder treatments initially is going to be regular eating. Um, and so that's eating three meals, three snacks a day, not going more than two to three hours without eating. That's going to be the focus initially. And then it's going to get into um, what's perpetuating the disordered eating behaviors so overvaluation of shape, um, dietary restraint, so restriction or dietary rules that are happening, and um, emotion-related um, emotions that can lead to um, engaging in restrictive eating. So that's CBTE. Um, the treatment for adolescents is different. Um, that treatment is called family-based treatment. And what this is, when the teen comes in with their parents, we're giving, we're telling parents, the term is we're charging them with the task of feeding their child. And so what that means is they're responsible for monitoring every meal, choosing what the child has, and plating the food. Um, that's a really daunting task for Initially, parents hear that and understandably, they, they're like, wait, we, we're coming to you and you're telling us we're taking charge. Um, and of course, that's extremely distressing for the adolescent. Um, but we know that when we leave it in the hands of the adolescent, they're fighting against the eating disorder. Making those decisions is incredibly difficult. Um, and we know that food is medicine initially. And so if we can get them to eat in their own home with their parents' supervision, who's going to be there the most, keep them at the outpatient level as opposed to inpatient, we have a really... Um, and of course, um, the more variety and restoration of weight that we can get early on is also associated with positive prognosis. Um, so that's what that treatment looks like. And it's divided into three phases. That's phase one. Phase two is we give that independence, um, a little bit more independence back to the teen. So maybe they're plating their meal while their parent oversees that. And the third stage is, um, and phase two starts once weight has been restored. Phase three is like getting them back on track for typical adolescence. And this is so fun because you get to see the adolescent, um, you get to see them removed from the eating disorder. I had a teen a little bit ago be like, oh, my parents are so annoying. And that just felt like a typical teenager. And the cloud of the eating disorder just felt removed. So it's an incredibly difficult treatment for, for families, but it's incredibly successful too when we can get that weight restoration and them back on track with eating. You hit on 
exactly kind of what I wanted to get at with my next question too, with the kind of the difference between treating eating disorders in an inpatient um, setting versus an outpatient setting and kind of how that, um, I don't want to say transformation, but how that, I guess, transfer from inpatient to outpatient works in those events. Yeah. So an individual is going to go inpatient for an eating disorder. Um, when we have those medical concerns, um, typically they'll go to the PCP for their regular um, eating disorder checkup. Vitals um, are concerning and they're typically sent to inpatient and when they're in inpatient, they're on bed rest, they have a prescribed meal plan. The focus is solely on refeeding. And um, we know that it, when they come out of inpatient, if what they're doing in inpatient is really what we're trying to model with family-based treatment. So parents being in control of eating and helping with weight restoration. And so research has shown when individuals do go inpatient and they come out with a good course of FBT, um, that is often associated with positive results. Um, sometimes when individuals are inpatient, they get transferred to residential care um, for a prolonged period to really help them get back on track to be able to come back to the outpatient setting. And FBT is just defined as, is that family-based therapy? Yeah, uh-huh. Family-based treatment, family-based therapy. And you touched on this a little bit too, but how th I can imagine this process for both like adolescents and adults can be distressing. So why is it distressing? And then how do you manage that distress? Yeah, Um Eating disorders impact the entire family. Um, they're incredibly difficult illnesses. And again, that's why we want to externalize the eating disorder, put the blame on the eating disorder and not the child. Um, but it's so distressing because like, my heart just sinks when I have this conversation with families because you see the look of terror in the teen's eyes when you say, mom and dad are going to be in control of eating. Um, what they hear is you're making me eat what I don't want to eat. And you're telling me that I'm going to gain weight. And in that moment, there's nothing that they fear more. And I think that what we can do is tap into, we call it the healthy part of them, the part of them that recognizes the eating disorder has taken so much of them and has taken them away from the things that they value. So we could tap into that. Um, and I think that that gives us a little bit of buy-in. Um, but of course, um, the distress is going to be present for, for quite some time. I think another big part of family-based treatment is having times when you're not talking about food. Um, siblings and friends play a huge role in being there for support and fun. And so I think maintaining that is important. But of course, distress is going to be really present in the beginning um, with the hope that after some time, the families are going to get into a routine and it's going to go down after a little bit. Beth, should we continue down our path of treatments and recovery or should we tap into this holiday question here? I think being sensitive to time, we should move over to holiday stuff. Okay, cool. Do you want to lead it or do you want me to lead it? 
sure, I can take this one. Um, so yeah, so when this episode releases, it will be in December. Um, and we will be, you know, nearing the holiday season. How do you typically see, if at all, the holidays impacting um, eating disorders and people with eating disorders? Uh, yeah, there is an impact. I think for everybody in general, the holidays can bring up so much. There's the stress that surrounds it, the expectations of how we should feel. And that could often be met with a sense of pain and loss and difficult um, family dynamics. I think that's for the general population. For eating disorders, there's the added layer that really most events in December, um, Christmas parties, holiday parties, um, family gathering, gatherings, they're often centered around food. And I think that this can be difficult for individuals depending on where they are in their recovery um, for different reasons. Um, and that so that's really difficult. Um, and then we have the added layer that I think just as common as food is at these events, so is the talk around bodies, weight, and eating. Um, we hear people say, I fasted all day for this meal, or my diet starts tomorrow. Um, and I think, too, people make comments about other people's bodies, and that could be really triggering for an individual with an eating disorder. Um, so there are a lot of triggers. And the way that we work through this is a DBT, a dialectical behavioral therapy skill that I really love. It's called Cope Ahead which is basically a fancy way of saying we're doing a lot of problem solving around the holidays. We're identifying potential triggers, emotions that they may feel, and potential disordered eating behaviors that can come from this. So we're really equipping them for how they can cope effectively when these um, triggering events that happen or how, what we could do ahead of time is that talking to family members about, um, you know, Maybe like, how do we not make comments about eating? Um, is that doing some uh, relaxation before you go to a family gathering? So that's going to look different for each person, depending on um, what are the triggers and where they are in their recovery. Does DBT play a big role in like eating disorder recovery or I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah. I've done EBT or EBT. Oh my gosh. Uh, DBT. So many acronyms. Um, I know. Yeah. I've done uh, DBT, so I'm just curious. Oh, you know, I love DBT. Um, it's a second line treatment for bulimia. Okay. Um, but I um, I run a DBT group, and I think that I try to infuse that into my treatment. Yeah. Um, there's such this emphasis on non judgment mindfulness and this idea that we could hold two things that feel opposite, but they can be true. Like part of you doesn't want to recover and another part of you does. So I think that DBT is oh, just this incredible treatment that I try, I, I find a way to, to incorporate with it. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. In here and there. So we'll finish up with asking what are some best ways or some advice you have for people who know somebody who has an eating disorder or them themselves has an eating disorder throughout the holidays? Um, I think in terms of supporting an individual, um, yeah, if, if you're concerned about someone having an eating disorder, um, 
it's okay to ask and have that conversation. That can be a really difficult conversation, but, um, and the response may, um, the person may be, be reactive to that. And that's part of the illness, but I think using I feel statements um, and really describing the behavior as opposed to making comments on their body is important. So, for example, I feel worried when I don't see you eating dinner. Um, that would be an example of sharing your feeling and describing the behavior. Um, for an individual who does have an eating eating disorder and um, as a supporter, I think being there, um, sometimes the person may want to talk about it. Other times they may want to reprieve. And so just being a friend, um, doing something that tries to get their mind off of it can be so, so helpful. And of course, I think as a supporter, taking care of yourself, um, it can be incredibly exhausting. Um, Eating disorders are exhausting and that can take a toll on a supporter's mental health, um, of course, in, in navigating how to, how to be there when an individual is really struggling with that. Um, so for, uh, Beth, your second question was, um, if someone is concerned that they have an eating disorder? Yeah. Or if they do have an eating disorder, what like best advice would you give them for managing this holiday season? For individuals with an eating disorder, I think really caring for yourself is so important. And that sounds so cliche. And what that really means to me is what can you do to take care of yourself? Um, the DBT term that is coming to my mind is really tapping into that wise mind of what do I need in this moment? Um, it can be so hard to ask for help, but I think for an individual who does have people who are there and can effectively support them, um, having the courage to ask takes a lot, but really leaning on people who can and want to be there for you can also be helpful. And I think coping, coping ahead to recognizing those triggers, um, and how, what can we do to, to support you through those? Yeah. All right. Is there any anything else you want to leave us with um, before before you log off? I want to be sensitive. Yeah, you, you need to get off at ten. <laughs> thanks. You know, I think I said this a few times, but yeah, I think I think a takeaway that I think I want to keep leaning into as a provider is eating disorders do not have one look; they impact everybody, and um, I think it's our responsibility as as providers, to be asking all of our patients what their relationship with food is, are they engaging in disordered eating behaviors? Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something, I think that's a takeaway message on my end. Yeah, I think yeah. that's wonderful. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking with us. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so I much for it. having me. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to What Brings You In today. Um, we will be joining you in a month. So we're, we're taking um, our next episode off for the holidays, um, but we'll be joining you back in January. And what are we going to be talking about, Kaya? We will be talking about the lovely transition of M2 students from their didactic years into uh, clinical core rotations. And by lovely M2s, Kaya means... Uh, her and myself and several yeah. other peers. So yours truly. Yes, yours truly. <laughs> so wish us luck and we will see you again next year. Back in January. Goodbye, yeah. friends. Bye everyone. Bye.